Thank you for listening to the Institute of World Politics podcast. To learn more about our graduate programs in national security, international affairs, and intelligence, or to support our work in educating future leaders, please visit www.iwp.edu. Hey, well, good afternoon, everyone. Uh, my name is Frank Marlowe. I am the Dean of Academics here at the Institute of World Politics. For those of you who aren't familiar with the Institute, we are an independent graduate school. We have five master's degrees, a 17 uh, graduate certificates, as well as a doctoral program. We're also very excited to be launching our first two purely online degrees starting this fall. If you're interested in learning more about our academic programs, please feel free to reach us, reach us at our website uh, and we'll reach out to any of the faculty or, or staff that you can find there. We're all happy, very happy to, to give you more information on all of this. It's my great pleasure today to introduce uh, Tim McCarthy. Uh, Mr. Timothy F. McCarthy's career has been evenly divided between the United States and overseas. During the 90s, he was president of Fidelity Investment Advisor, Advisor Group prior to becoming the president of Charles Schwab and Company. In 2000, Mr. McCarthy became chairman of Good Morning Securities Group in South Korea, and then chairman and CEO of Nikko Asset Management in Japan. These were the first times each country's government had approved a foreigner to lead one of their flagship financial services companies. Also notably, during this tenure at Nikko, he co-founded the Rongtong JV in China. His firms attracted over 8 million Asians to invest $300 billion in fund assets. He is now active in venture capital high-tech investing. His other affiliations include Merrill Lynch & Company, Advisor Tech Corporation, Shinhan Investment Corp, Pitney Bowes, DocSense, Nico Cordial Corporation, Oberon Financial Technology Incorporated, Nico Asset Management Company Limited, Five Nine Incorporated, and Nico Asset Management Asia Limited. Uh, Mr. McCarthy is fluent in six languages, which is embarrassing to me because I'm barely fluent in one. He has published two books, one a bestseller in Japanese. Mr. McCarthy's academic history includes an MBA from the Harvard uh, University Graduate School of Business as a Baker Scholar in 1978 and a BA in Economics and International Relations from the University of California, Davis in 1973. It's my pleasure to introduce uh, Tim McCarthy. Tim. Thank you, Frank. I, I do appreciate it. it. It is funny. As you get older, your resume gets longer. <laughs> Whereas when you start, I remember helping my kids when they first out of, got, a, got out of college. And it'd be, it'd be real short. Um, <clears throat> what this topic um, about succeeding outside of, of your own country, particularly in Asia, uh, you know, I've seen so many failures over the years that, uh, you know, it's important to try to help those people trying to go out for the first time in particular and work overseas. So I'm going to try to be as provocative as, as possible uh, in many of the things I say. And, and of course, that can, that can engender or cause disagreement. And the disagreement is good, particularly for the students in terms of learning, uh, making them think and the, and the like about uh, what they're going to do going forward. Uh, the, 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 what's important to note is, although I'm coming from the private sector, once you go overseas, particularly in fields like financial services, increasingly technology, uh, you're really in their public sector. Um, in the case of financial services, governments look at, at uh, you, whatever you're doing, as in effect a, like a quasi-government uh, entity, uh, and they want to control you. And uh, Lord have mercy on you if, if you don't take that seriously. Uh, GR, government relations, uh, is important in the U.S. It is critical overseas uh, for you to, for a person to understand, and therefore, uh, you, you want to consider yourself part of the, in effect, the public sector as well. Uh, I can remember an instance, I won't name, several times I won't be able to name the country, it's just too, uh, too sensitive, where uh, one of the investment banks, they 
they wanted to take uh, do a merger of a company and the government says, well, you know, we, we really would prefer not to see that. They said, well, there's nothing in the rules to stop us, so we're going to go ahead. The next morning around 8 o'clock, uh, the police showed up at their, their, their spouse's house and said, you've got an hour to pack. They went to the schools, uh, picked up the kids from the schools and obviously to the offices and, and uh, took all the, the employees of, of that firm, brought them to the airport and sent them home. Uh, that's that's how uh, how difficult it can be when you uh, when you don't respect what what they're wanting and so many of the rules are are unwritten. I, I remember being in a Middle East country and asking the the the, the head of finance, the minister of finance, well, you know, we're having trouble getting the rules, and he was saying you have to talk to get a local lawyer and all that. We're having trouble getting, you know, I I said I'm, we're having trouble finding out exactly what the rules are. We'd like to see the, the in effect, the rule book for financial services. And he goes, oh, we don't release that. And I'm like, well, there are laws. And he goes, oh, no, 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 we, we don't release that at all. And I wanted to say, well, my God, the Hammurabi Code was was created, what, 2,600 years ago, just hundreds of miles from here. And he says, oh, no, we're afraid to release the uh, that information for fear, then we'd have to stick to it. <laughs> that tells you often uh, a lot about uh, the countries you're dealing with and how you have to be very different in, 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 in how you think. Um, and this leads really to the, the main point I've got down here. If you have a, a mantra that you want to think of the whole time you're overseas is, is in effect being what I call sanal, or what's called in Japan sanal. In, in China, they call it tinghua uh, at times. Um, this is this in and of itself is uh, controversial because sometimes that can mean meek or obedient. But what I love about it is, in its core definitions, it means pure. And what that means is opening your mind to not be sitting there going, "Well, I know better." Uh, uh, really keeping your mind open to hearing new ideas. Um, and and this is an, an ancient philosophy. I first learned it. Of course, <laughs> some 60 pounds and uh, 40 years ago, I was a karate instructor. And uh, you know how you've heard before people say, well, don't, don't argue about politics or religion. Boy, what you want to add to that is different styles of karate. Uh, can you imagine the fights that broke out? And one of, one of the ancient philosophies is when you go over to another man's dojo, who's got a different style, you make no judgments, no comparisons or contrasts about what he's showing you versus your own system. You just remain to now or to walk. You remain open. First, learn his system. You can't and should not be making value judgments right off the bat. You have to learn their system first. And only then can you compare and contrast to see what you bring from, from, from what, what, uh, what you've learned in the past yourself. There are many examples of, of hubris where, where Americans or it's the same with a lot of Europeans coming into Asia and saying, you know, I know what to do. And they, and they in effect, do ready, fire, aim, meaning they don't, they don't take the care to see whether it, it, it's going to fit or work. Um, I had an example um, myself with, with employee benefits where one of the companies I came in to run, this was in Japan. Um, we needed to cut, cut costs wherever we could. <laughs> and uh, I was like, well, we're paying for their commuter fees. We should stop subsidizing that. Uh, clearly, uh, that's better than cutting salaries and the like. <laughs> and I saw this look, uh, got what, what, what I call the teeth sucking, where people start doing that. And then you start saying, okay, <laughs> before, before we do this, tell me what's the concern about uh, simply rather than cutting salaries or or whatever, or not saving the money uh, is so bad about, uh, you know, cutting the commuter uh, subsidy. Then I found out, often you're not told these things in advance unless you probe, that um, although we think of Japan as a very male-dominant society, in many ways it is, what one doesn't realize as a foreigner until you, you get there and work there, that um, everybody has a number, like a Social Security number in their pension plan. And your pay goes into an account uh, in, into the banks. And that is the family account. So all your salary goes into that account. And guess who manages uh, that account? Your spouse. 
So typically what you see is, although when you go home at night, they, she, they may be doing the Mitsuyubi and the bowing and everything, but she's controlling the money. And typically men get uh, about a $450, $500 a month allowance uh, salary, and that's to cover commute um, and lunches and the like. So therefore, if I took away the commuter benefit, there goes the men's beer money in reality. I think we all know you just don't want to touch uh, the beer money um, if, if you want to be well regarded there. Uh, I've seen other big mistakes made by companies going overseas. Several Asian countries have disability rules, and uh, and they're quite helpful in making sure that people that are challenged either site-wise or, or, uh, or physically that they can still get jobs. Um, they will come in and say, oh, no, you can't, you can't advertise that uh, we're looking for, for we, we accept people in certain jobs for dis, that are disabled. Uh, that's, a, that's our company's global rule. Well, then you find out that if you don't have enough, um, in effect, disability points from hiring a certain amount of people, going to their fairs a lot, even advertising, that you will not only be fined by the government, but your, your corporate name appears in the paper once a year as firms that didn't try to uh, hire disabled people. Not what you want. Um, and so therefore it was a big fight with in effect New York of these company of, of the subsidiaries saying, oh, we have to be able to market. Um, the, one of the best examples was with the Hong Kong Jockey Club. One major bank was like, oh no, we can't do any business with them. That's gambling. We, we, we have a rule against gambling, not realizing at all that the Hong Kong Jockey Club is one of the most prestigious organizations uh, in Asia, but certainly in, in Hong Kong. Um, so that's where an example of you just got to understand locally what's going on and keep your hubris down and make sure you're being so now open first to uh, whatever they're coming up with their ideas, what's going on in their cultures. The last thing I want to mention, and it's very connected, is watch out for false synergies. Time and time again, uh, headquarters will say, uh, oh, no, we got a cost savings. We can do all of this in one place. Uh, we can make all the local countries then uh, where our operations are, um, you know, uh, uh, modify to get the synergies. More money is lost by trying to get these false synergies. Um, what you want to look at is, first, will their way work? And this is important. Sometimes you say, well, I've got another way to do this. My way may even be more optimal. But if their way works, it may be better to, to leave it as it is or adopt their way, because that's internalized uh, for them. They've got it all figured out, particularly before you learn all the little, the little subtleties of why they're doing it the way they are. Now, this is important, know their language. The way I wanna start this is by saying, uh, we often hear that uh, when people get divorced, the number one reason they give is failure to communicate. Those are two people that speak the same mother tongue and they're having a failure to communicate. So therefore, when you go overseas, particularly in countries uh, that aren't, but actually even in countries that uh, are quite English literate, you really, if you're, especially if you're relocated there, you really want to learn the language. And you want to keep studying. And I was amazed often after five and six years of studying a language, I would still be learning little subtleties about their culture that I did not know. Um, so that, I, I just can't emphasize that enough. Um, interesting, one, uh, when I first got assigned overseas, the first time I was actually in Germany, um, I got advice from somebody that I really didn't like. He was a bit obnoxious, but he said to me, Tim, whatever you do, don't make any friends when you first get there. Just learn the language. And I'm like, oh, wow, interesting. Uh, what I found, but I followed his advice. I, I got through the fact that he was annoying and said, well, that may be advice to follow. The problem is, is when you don't know the language, then when you get there, all your friends will be people that either speak fluent English only or want to speak English, and you don't make cross that Rubicon of, of total immersion to learn the language. Within a matter of a few months, you can get to a point where your friends can then be foreign uh, or, or local there uh, and, uh, and put up with your, with your bad language skills until you develop it. 
that's a very important way to uh, to uh, to get progress fast in the language. Why the language is so important is that's the whole culture, that's the history, that's the zeitgeist, how they how they look at the world. Uh, you see it in language in a way you you, you can't see it uh, when when they're talking only English to you. This next point here is one of the biggest mistakes that I see, particularly American firms make, which is they don't use interpreters. They think, oh no, that costs too much money, particularly let's get a cheap one, let's only get one, or let's not even bother, I got one of my employees that can do it. They try to save money on interpreting, and that is just mistake number one. Um, what you see is, is that again, if you wanna understand exactly what that other person is saying and what they're meaning, you need somebody that knows, has spent their whole careers learning both languages. Uh, then they can help you best to understand what's going on. More deals have been ruined, negotiations have broken down because there was a lack of people in the middle that really know what they're doing, doing the translations. This next first, first bullet there, you see principal versus agent. Oh man, I've seen this mistake be, be deadly all the time where they'll say, oh no, so-and-so speaks the language in the company. Uh, he's going to act as an interpreter. What they don't realize is that person then uh, has a vested interest in how this gets handled. They're going to be interpreting the way they want to be uh, interpreting uh, for the, their best interest, not necessarily yours. Uh, and then likewise, um, you, you can get situations, and this, this is just deadly, where all of a sudden the interpreter, who's the principal, gets into a conversation with the person and you're having to go, well, wait a second, guys, <laughs> you got to involve me again here. So you can see how deadly that is, particularly when this matters. Um, so it's important to get someone that not only is extremely competent, but is going to be really true, truly objective. Sometimes when it's really important, a larger group, nothing's wrong with having two people there that know the language. That way afterwards, you can talk to both of them as to what they heard. Um, this next point, working with them before and after each meeting. Now, let's say you're not relocating there. You're just going over for, uh, to, for a one-week or two-week visit. You've got to make a presentation or two. Uh, you want to make a good impression, but you also want to see what's going on uh, in, in the internal meetings. and Likewise, talking with, with external people. What you want to do is make sure you get an interpreter. Make sure that they're objective, as I said. And you want to work with them before and after. Uh, by the way, nothing's, nothing's better than even if you're only making a two-week trip to have somebody brief you on the language and how that affects their culture. Is this a society that's extremely conservative? Uh, do they say what they mean? How do they say yes and how do they say no? Um, and then what's very valuable to do is, particularly if you're making a presentation or even if it's just an informal uh, meeting, meet with the interpreter in advance. It's great if you can talk to them a day or so in advance, or at least do some exchange of, of, of writing. The reason is, is that that gives that interpreter a chance to learn maybe some of the language of that company or language of the, of the particular field. Uh, what's interesting is even when the field uh, has a particular language, which they do, that firm may also have its own unique language. And so this gives them an opportunity uh, to be better prepared. They're gonna do a better job. Likewise, after the meeting, nothing's better than sitting down with that interpreter, sometime soon, preferably immediately, but put them on notice that you're gonna be getting to them maybe later on in the day if they're busy or, or whatever. Here's why. I was in a situation, I'll never forget when it hit me, after six years where I listened to the answer, of the, the response from the other side. And then afterwards, I had I said to the interpreter, I said, you know, this is really depressing. I understood most of what the guy was saying. I don't know whether he said yes or no. <laughs> so it was really depressing. The interpreter looked at me and says, you know what? Neither did I. I didn't understand whether he really said yes or no, because he didn't really say yes or no. And then we knew, okay, we got to go back and get this. This wasn't just uh, me not getting it, it was just the guy was not, not, not making it easy to understand. Um, last point here is about working with interpreters versus translators. Translators are often much more um, academic, uh, formal in their words, um, whereas interpreters have to communicate more colloquially, try to get at what's really being said. So those quantitative differences can be, can be deadly. 
uh, especially with characters. When, when, when you study Chinese and Japanese and the like, and you learn about what's all baked into those characters, um, that history, what that says about their culture, then you realize, oh my God, this is, this is really, uh, uh, my, the, what I'm thinking in English is just not coming off that way. A couple of words give you very real examples. One of them is independent. When we in, we in America think of independent, we think of, I'm my own man, I'm Clint Eastwood, uh, not uh, you know, riding into town uh, on my own horse and I'm not a beholden to anybody. Unfortunately, in many Asian countries, when they hear that word, this is not everybody, but a lot of the traditionals, they'll think, well, what's wrong with you? Um, did you get, why'd you get kicked out of the castle? <laughs> you know, you're like a Ronin. And so they don't necessarily look at the word independently the same way we do. I saw this with the word investing. <laughs> you know, when we think of investing, it's positive, you know, more proactive than just savings, but not taking the risk of trading. Well, when they hear, they see the character for investing, often they're thinking of Toshi, throw in, <laughs> like, like we're gambling. Uh, so different ways of looking at it. One word there, I put their advisor, oh boy. <laughs> when you when you hear whenever you hear in, in many countries where they're using the English word, you'll think, oh good, now, now we're talking the same way. No, that means they don't have a word in their language for that word. So you don't know how they're looking at that word. And that's an example where you'd want to ask the uh, the interpreter, okay, how are they using this English word? Democracy, this is a great example. When we hear the word democracy, we think, oh, okay, this is, it's built into our culture for years. It's Greco-Roman you know, you know, uh, origins. It tells us that we have freedom. Uh, we, have, we have the ability to choose uh, our own, our own um, you know, rulers or, or, and the like, and we have freedom to, to move about as we see fit. Uh, and as it's used often in, in Asia, it, what they're often focused in on is <laughs> freedom to make money, just freedom to make money. That doesn't mean freedom across the board. So that tells you a lot. I remember once when, when I opened a subsidiary um, in, and began selling actually the first funds that got launched outside of, uh, of China in, in, uh, in their, 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 uh, their, both their stock and their bond funds, where it was solely that, that purpose. Uh, and one of my board directors said, you know, Tim, you got to watch out. You know, that's a one-party system. And I looked at him because we were in Tokyo at the time. He's an American. And I said, what do you think Japan is? Other than about six months, the last 50, 60 years, it's been a one-party system. Uh, look, at, look at Singapore, of which uh, the Chinese have studied very closely because that's effectively a one-party system and yet, it, and yet it was able to be quite successful. So you can see, therefore, you can't often bring all your value judgments in to understand what's going to work and what's going to not. That's what you care about, is what, what's going to be effective. And so getting in and understanding, first and foremost, how they look at each one of the words is just critical to your success. Gaining trust. It's like anything else. When you're negotiating with people, when you have employees or peers, you want them uh, you, you want them to, to trust you, to listen to you, change ideas, be on the same facts page and the like. We know how hard that is, particularly the last five years in America, again, where everybody's speaking uh, when their native tongue is one language. You can imagine what it's like uh, when, you're, when you have different languages. Um, how do you get trust? How do you develop trust? Well, one of the ways is you got to carve out much more time than you even do in the U.S., and meeting constantly with people. Uh, getting particularly to outsiders, out, people outside your company, your stakeholders, and not only your, your, your customers, uh, but also the providers of services. And that's true with both uh, public sector and private sector. Get to know your regulators. Um, very, very important. Um, see how they're viewing it, how to have them be thinking afterwards, okay, how does that differ from what I'm used to? Uh, interestingly, when, when you get that outside exposure, especially up front, when you then go into meetings with, with your internal people, you can see just how connected or not connected they are to the rest of their own country. 
Uh, that'll get you a lot of respect, quite frankly, because they'll be saying, oh, this guy knows a bit more of our country. Ironically enough, um, you can find out in some areas more than even your people will know about their own country. So getting that outside exposure is important just to be able to say to them, oh, well, that's not quite what I heard, you know, when somebody is telling you what, what they're doing or why it's going to work. You can say, well, you know, that's not quite what I heard uh, outside talking to competitors and the like. And then they know that they've got to be a bit more honest <laughs> in what, what they say to you. This next bullet, meeting with people at all levels in your company, all ages as well. Uh, I, I remember I had a situation where, this happened to be twice, actually two different countries, where um, one of the senior managers was hitting women repeatedly at work. <laughs> and so obviously this, this was going to stop under, under my under, under my responsibility, uh, when you talk to people directly, often you can't, uh, they won't necessarily tell you. So you have to have um, interact surrogates uh, doing the interview. The difference between what 50 year old plus men said about this event, these events, and what 30 year old, 30 something women said about it was dramatic. Men often said, well, we have to find out why he hit her. Whereas the women were saying, well, it doesn't matter because nothing's going to get done anyway. That's an example of the kinds of gaps one needs to understand about ages and genders very importantly. Uh, I had to go back to the, the, the whole group of men and say, guess what, guys? Unless the sentence begins with she had a gun, we don't care about why he did what he, what he did. That is just unacceptable. So those are the kinds of discussions you have to have. Making sure that you're again, so now up front, gather all the facts and the like before saying anything. One point I noticed here is your business card. The number of times where I've seen or learned where a foreigner gets his name translated into local characters and doesn't pay enough attention, get enough different types of people in that country looking at that name, it can be embarrassing. Uh, and so uh, therefore, you want to make sure that lots of people have looked at the characters they chose and the title, how the title gets translated. I remember one firm, um, uh, an American came over and said, well, I'm now the president in your country of, of my particular subsidiary. The country head was like, oh boy, this is going to be a problem. What he did is, okay, but the guy didn't speak the language. So he said, well, you translate the title then for me on the card. Well, what he did is translate literally presidento on the card. And so when foreigners would read that, they would, they would know what a president is, but it has no standing, in, 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 and this was in the case of Japan. Uh, so it doesn't really mean anything. Whereas the country had had the title Shacho. Shacho is what rules in that country. So in effect, what the person, the, the, the new entrant thought he was getting with having presidente on his card was really next to useless in terms of or effective what he was wanting. Uh, last point here. Cultures are changing so much more rapidly for a whole bunch of reasons, and you, and you know what they are. And it's getting more complex to read what these cultural changes are. Many hybrids, uh, the, the changes you can, you can imagine what Hong Kong is going through. So if you, if you come into a society and say, okay, I can talk to a couple of people, get a good handle on what's going on there, uh, that may be very different from what other people are feeling. Uh, you may talk to the locals who got educated overseas. They're just going to have a different uh, way they think, a different mindset than those that never, never really have spent much time overseas. So understanding those subtleties is important when you're when you then go go to attempt to to uh, to uh, to uh, gain trust from them. In effect, next one bracket the truth. You talk to one person, you'll get one view. You talk to another, you get another view. Getting multiple inputs into well, what is reality, what is going on is, is critical. You, you, you start to bracket then well, what may be reality. There are stages to, commu to communicating, and it's the same in, in, just domestically, but it happens even more so overseas. When you, when you sit down with someone, you, you want to have found a way to earn the right, earn the right for them to be there, for them to share with you. So you have to think through lots of different uh, ways, avenues that you can get to, to, to get them to want to talk to you and share with you. 
often by giving them something. It could be info or insights, something that they may not know uh, that you want to share with them or about yourself. Um, that then opens the door a bit more. Uh, the other thing is, is uh, this, this would be obvious, is you know showing interest to them. Although if you start profiling them right off the bat, asking questions without giving them anything, they may be much more reluctant, particularly when you're overseas. Next thing is when you ask the questions, you got to listen. Now, this next point, bring a listener. <laughs> it's turned out in a lot of research that they found that men, men think process differently than women. With men, we're either talking or getting ready to talk or we're listening. It's like a toggle switch. Women are often better at doing both at the same time. What that means is if you're engaged in the conversation, you may not be listening to everything that person is saying. So what's extremely helpful is often have another, whenever you can, have another, an effect, a listener there. So afterwards, you get together, you can really put together, what did he or she really say? What did they mean? And you invariably find out, oh, I missed that, or I, I didn't get that quite right. It's very important uh, to you then gaining trust, because you'll know more what the situation is. Uh, you're going to hear this throughout the, the, the presentation. Test decisions uh, first. Um, uh, you, when, you, when you say, okay, this is what we're going to do, just like you saw with the, with the cutting of commuter benefits, boy, it really paid off to talk to a lot of people in multiple constituencies in and outside the firm before you, before you make that decision. Um, <clears throat> um, it, it, it can take often a long time to learn somebody's opinion. And I remember one guy, I didn't learn his opinion until after working with him for two years. He'd never been asked uh, before, and it was just, you just don't communicate that up. You just listen uh, when you're talking up. So it can take a long time to open that door. But my point here in the bottom is remember your instrument flying. What that means is this is not your culture. You've spent your whole life learning your own culture, learning how to compete in your own culture. Uh, when you go into another, another country, they're going to have many differences. So you want to make sure you go through these, these tools, these techniques, uh, just like in effect instrument flying, to make sure you're not shortcutting the process. Uh, execution. Got to execute. Uh, what I have found is that meetings work better than memos. Yes, you got to do a certain amount of writing, particularly if you're in the government. Remember, meetings are one way, uh, and it takes time to get the reply back. Often then when you get the reply, reply back, it's too formal. It's too cautious. It's more vague. Whereas when you're talking with people, interacting with them, They'll often share stuff that they definitely wouldn't put into writing, and you get immediate feedback. You see very quickly in a meeting whether or not this is going well or they get it. Uh, so that, yes, we know a lot of large companies, certainly the government, have got to be writing memos and the like. But understand, you're not going to be able to get the right plan and then get it executed unless you're doing a lot of verbal communication with people back and forth. I note here, watch eye formation management. This is when you... You get up in, in firms, very easy overseas to fall into the I formation where I communicate to one man and then, and then he or she then executes from there. That's dangerous. You want to make sure that you, you are, are talking with multiple groups at the same time, listening to, to uh, on a peer-to-peer -peer basis uh, with not only your direct reports, but, but their, uh, their cohorts, their peers and the like. Um, often, uh, I, I would be in a situation where if, if a person was in a conflict um, and I'm just talking to them, you stop the meeting and say, let's bring that person into the room. So it's a two-on-one. Uh, if you're lower down, nothing's better than suggesting to your boss, well, let's get my, my cohort here, potentially my competitor, in the room together so we can both talk it out, the three of us. Uh, you'll actually get a lot further in terms of trust. Uh, as well as just be more, more effective. You want to get their views on your plan and actually find a way to modify what you're coming up with so it feels like to them like it's their plan. Uh, very important. That way you capture their heart and you probably get things that they can execute more easily because they can internalize it. So 
make sure that they, that they feel that this is their plan as well. And that, 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 that takes a lot of interaction. Third point, watch out for ego yells. This is dangerous. Basically, people that only speak, they may be the only one that's speaking both languages well. And so you say, oh, I got no problem. I can communicate with everybody. I've got, uh, you know, so-and-so department manager. He speaks English. Um, uh, and so I'll just deal with him. What you, what you don't realize is often then he's running it the way he wants to. Um, I remember in, in one situation, the first thing I did very early on was promote a, a, a senior executive who was very local, didn't speak any English, to be my chief of staff. That broke up the ego yeah uh, problem that often stops firms. You know, you get surprised often a year later when you thought you had everything, in, you know, put into through a firm, and you didn't because you only dealt with an ego yeah. Very important to get broad feedback from many people that don't speak your language. Um, when you when you finish deciding, you're all together, you can decide what you want to do, you've got to get feedback. You've got to hear what they say back to you. Have them feedback the message you thought that they heard. You'll learn a lot uh, from hearing back how they interpreted. Uh, then you have a much better chance of executing. I remember once wanting um, a big conference room built, and I wanted it done in um, in stadium style where there'd be more interaction. They all nodded. They come back with theater style twice. Uh, if it wasn't for coming and constantly saying, no, I have to see the plans. I need to see the stage level to finally break that, that, that uh, mindset of, no, it's going to be in theater style because uh, they, they all wanted to be more passive, just sit back and listen rather than be forced to interact. So that's where uh, that feedback from them, how they're looking at it is so critical. Implementation, you got to check with all levels, needless to say. Uh, and, and very importantly, uh, because there's such a fear of failure in a lot of the countries, uh, find opportunities to basically note when somebody tried something and then it didn't work, but you make it clear to everybody, that's okay, at least he was going for it. And rewarding people who, who, who take the chance to disagree, also very important. Um, now, conflicts. It's sounding in a lot of ways that, uh, you know, well, we want to go along with what they're saying. There are times when you can't do that. Um, so how do you avoid conflicts? How do you manage conflict? Well, number one is go back and read uh, slide five and do it even more intensely. That way you're, you're anticipating more whether you're going to have a conflict. You can be working with them in advance and the like. Next point here is go slow to go fast. What I mean by that is sometimes you can't get it done in one meeting. They've got an entire lifetime, a whole corporate culture of doing it one way, and now you're wanting another. It's going to take multiple meetings before you can be effective. Third point here, pick your battles. There are so many things that you'll see that need to be necessarily fixed. There's a lot of areas where you disagree. What you have to do is step back and go, at the end of the year, when they when they evaluate me, did I get the my obsession done? What really mattered to my superiors and the like? Did that get done? That's what matters. So if it's not material, a lot of times you say, oh, I'm just not going to pick that as a, as, a, as a battle. Intelligent gathering. This is where those of you in the room that have been in the intel gathering spy business, uh, this is absolutely critical. There's just a lot of people that won't share with you. So you've got to develop multiple listening sources out there, uh, sometimes through two and three layers, pre constantly working with them. You've got to hear from lots of different people on an ongoing basis uh, what, what, the, what you won't be able to hear directly. So all of that's, that's talked about in the spycraft is very, very important. Uh, and not, and, but for a positive reason, you're trying to learn what's really going on, what people really think about whatever you're trying to do or what the problem is. Uh, and you want to listen to the influencers in the company. Oftentimes there's a local that may not like foreigners um, and they really are the informal gatekeeper in the company. You really want to find ways to get them to tell you what's, what they think, what's going on. And, and that's before you execute because you may change. Peer-to-peer -peer approach, very important. I, I had a situation with, with a partner I can't say the country. Um, the partner was the only way we could get in that country. 
they were billionaires. Um, <laughs> they were gangsters. Uh, and even though they agreed not to be involved in the company, the next day I'm finding out they're threatening to beat up uh, one of my fund managers to get him to, to buy uh, not good stocks. Uh, if I went in and lectured them, it would just not be good. The pride was too strong. What I chose to do was just talk to them on a peer-to-peer -peer basis about, well, here, here's what I've seen in other countries. Here's what we know in other countries about how gangsters were able to move into society and keep their money, not end up in jail and the like. What are the things they did? So I talked about uh, what the Kennedys did, for instance, what Tony Accardo uh, did in the mafia to get established and actually be able to make it to 85 and retire. Uh, after that conversation, uh, where it was in effect peer-to-peer, -peer, not saying I know how to do it better, just more talking about what those that have succeeded in moving out of gangsterdom did, uh, it worked. And in fact, we ended up with a much better relation after that. So keeping that peer-to-peer -peer attitude in conflicts is, even when it's very, uh, very acrimonious, can, can really work. Uh, last slide managing upwards. Stay close to your friends, but closer to your enemies. <laughs> and I don't mean necessarily always enemies. These can be subordinates. These can be, uh, at times, competitors back at home office, uh, your multiple bosses and the like. Um, <clears throat> whoever uh, you think um, may be um, somebody that, you're, that, that would want to have your job or want to not see you do well, that you want to get real close to them, much closer to them, um, so that you know how they're thinking. Uh, before you leave, this is particularly true for, for a relocation. You want to work aggressively at headquarters, just learning as much as you can. Because remember, when you got overseas, they know you don't know their country. What you want, what they want from you is tell them what's going on at headquarters. So you've got to very much uh, learn what's going on and network aggressively. When you leave, Nothing is worse, for instance, if you come back to headquarters two or three years later and nobody knows you. You only talk to one person at headquarters while you were overseas. You want to have a nice, broad network at headquarters that you uh, frequently talk to after you leave. But get to know them well before you leave. This last point, interview prior expats. Even if they're outside the firm, I have learned more, saw more uh, landmines or punchy sticks out there what I was going into by talking to people that had the job before me or areas before, they, they, uh, they tell you the most. Uh, <clears throat> you wanna make sure you really understand what, H, what HQ is expecting of you before leaving. When you go overseas, recognize this is true in the government and with big corporations, you're often going into a 3D matrix reporting structure, meaning you've got your local country head boss, then you've got the headquarters boss that you haven't had before. And then you've got the global functional head. I remember in one firm, I asked one of the major banks, okay, now what's your org chart look like? And they said, oh, we don't dare publish that. There'd be too many arguments. That's the mindset you want to have when you go overseas and understanding how broadly you want to look at in terms of influencers, people that uh, you're supposed to be pleasing. You often have multiple bosses. And therefore, when one says A and the other one says you got to do B, you need to be telling both of them, okay, here's what I'm hearing the other person say. Maybe we need to have a meeting together to make sure that gets worked out because otherwise you're going to get caught in sandwich in the middle. Uh, the next point here, find channels to briefly communicate. This is interesting. There's a lot of different ways to communicate to people. You got to keep it brief and tight, long memos. They often just don't read. Uh, verbal is critical. When you do go in and writing, I have found oftentimes even the, the most senior, busiest of people, writing them a, a, a quick note on a Sunday morning, their time is, can be awesome. They're at home. They get bored <laughs> with their family. They go check their emails. Nobody's written them. You'll get more attention on, on an email that you send on Sunday morning with certain types, many types, than you ever would during the week. Uh, you, you develop, as I said before, a broad group of influencers there. Uh, not At headquarters, not just your superiors, but it can even be your former subordinates. They can keep you appraised of what's going on. Uh, last point here, again, uh, your job is to be communicating to that local staff, your value 
of what headquarters view is and, and whether it's rational or what their rationale is. And then you're getting feedback from the locals as to what we're working on, what we won't. So good luck. Um, the uh, I got a couple hundred other things I can talk about, but it's better now to turn it over to your to see what questions you have and see if I can focus in on what you're most interested in. Um, unless uh, Frank or uh, if any of you have one in, in yep. particular, I see there's several questions. Oh, there we go. Okay, sorry, I, I was having a, a Zoom issue. <laughs> uh, thank you uh, very much, Tim, uh, for a great presentation. Obviously, um, the, the Q&A is open. So if people do have questions, uh, please, uh, I should have mentioned that in the beginning. But um, so I will take, uh, I will abuse my, uh, my position as the moderator okay. and, and ask the first question. Um, you know, you've had ex senior experience in three different countries in Asia, at least three. You know, you mentioned the your role in Japan, in, in South Korea, and obviously your, your involvement in China. And, and the advice you give is necessarily broad to, to encompass all three of these. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the differences between those three in terms of uh, cultural environment operating within those cultures, because while there are some similarities, there are a lot of important differences. And I wonder if you could comment on how someone should think about those uh, those three very distinct uh, cultures. That, that that is a great question, and, and actually, I, I worked for years in Taiwan. Uh, I worked on and off for twenty years in India. Uh, you know, went went to school in the Soviet Union then, and, uh, and worked as a junior in Germany for for two years. Um, so that that there, there's enough bag a basket of countries that I can get a feeling for all the different cultures. There are generalizations that you can make, and I'll focus in on the ones that, 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 that you said. But what's very important is, uh, to like Tip O'Neill said, <laughs> all comes back to local. So even within a culture, as I said, these, these countries are changing so rapidly, and there's so many different constituents in a country that uh, you want to be looking even more at what's the different philosophies uh, different mindsets within each country because they they can vary uh, quite a bit. Uh, some of the generalizations, though, are true. Um, you know, I, I remember uh, being said, and please, please, no one take any offense to this, but I've heard this from locals where they'll say, uh, you know, democracy doesn't necessarily work so well in India when you're or in China when you're trying to get something done because nobody wants to speak up. Uh, they're afraid, and that's and that's actually true. China, Japan, even even uh, even South Korea as well. <laughs> Whereas one Indian said to me, the "Problem in India often is that nobody shuts up," and so that that's a big cultural difference. Now, equally though, what's interesting is the generational differences. So, uh, first generation, I'm going back now 20, 20 some odd years ago of, of Indians they would be much more of an open, uh, freer conversation um, covering lots of stream of consciousness topics. The younger generation uh, Indians are often the ones that are coming out of technical fields, very focused in on, uh, on, on whatever is the objective. Uh, uh, likewise, in China, what you see is they're much more globally connected. Uh, <clears throat> and in fact, China versus Japan, it's surprising often how much more globally focused uh, a Shanghai is, a Shenzhen is, when the people you're dealing with uh, there than what you see in Japan. I, I remember reading, I don't know what the number is today, that Japan was 154th of all countries in, in English literacy. That says a lot in terms of how internally focused the country is. Many exceptions, uh, but that's important to note. Uh, in, in the case of Korea, they just move faster. Uh, you can get a lot of things done a lot quicker. They're very externally connected. So on the one hand, that society can look very insular. On the other hand, that society is amazingly open, uh, much more quicker to decisions. Uh, I remember one guy saying, uh, it was a Korean actually that studied in America. He said, you know, sometimes it reminds me of he'd learned a, a Yogi Berra joke, which is, you know, they're driving down the road at 100 miles an hour. And uh, the, the, the pastor says, you know, we're lost. And, and the yogi says, yeah, but we're making great time. 
then that can happen there where they're just going 100 miles an hour to get something done, uh, but it's in the wrong direction. Uh, but it's also one of the reasons why Korea, South Korea has achieved so much so fast, amazingly. Whereas in Japan, you can get situations where it's just moving in glacial speed. Um, and so that, that can, can be a problem. So unfortunately, the question is so good, you can write a book on it, <laughs> the differences among anxiety. But that gives you a flavor of how much you have to probe quite deep uh, each, each segment uh, to, to, to best understand what the differences are. Terrific, thank you. Um, okay, well, uh, look, if uh, no one else has spoke, uh, piped up, so I will, um, I'll take a, a, another shot then. Okay. Um, we're going to just become a conversation, I suppose, um, which is, is great for me. Um, you know, a lot of, and maybe this gets more into the, the challenges that, that people are, are finding now, concerns about, uh, about uh, China itself. I wonder if you might be comfortable commenting a little bit on a, some of the, 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 the views within the business community um, on doing business in China uh, and the, the challenges of working with the Chinese government in particular, um, you know, there's there's certainly been a lot of uh, criticism of some of the, the companies operating in China for, you know, being willing to to part with intellectual property or, or other things which are conditions of operating in inside the government. I wonder if you'd be interested in talking a little bit about your own dealings with the Chinese government, whether you feel some of the criticisms of some of these companies are overbroad, over and if so, um, how, how might we be, how ought we be thinking about dealing with that sort of a problem? Well, you know, I would say, certainly I think a lot of, of, of the criticisms are, are true and, and are real, and, and one has to watch out for them. Uh, by the same token, though, is, again, just like I said, to begin with using the word Sanal, you want to walk in with an open mind and understanding what's really happening, why, what's their motivations. And I mean, right down to the person that you're, you're dealing with uh, at, a, at, a, at a very specific level. Uh, but I'll give you an example of how often we can miss it in the West. Um, I remember really from the late 80s, even into the early 2000s, I was constantly hearing from among the smartest people we know, real pundits in the U.S. that were studying China, and they were saying, first, well, China's never going to make it. One-party system just can't work. Then when China began to emerge, again, if you go from the late 80s into the two to today, just over a 20, 30-year period, they went from 3% of global GDP to about the same size as us, about 20% of global GDP. And, and yet you heard year after year from our experts, well, that, they made it last year, but it's going to fall apart next year. And you have to say to yourself, what the heck happened? How did so many smart people studying China so well get it so wrong? And the reason was, is they were thinking, for instance, well, you have to have a two-party political system. As I said in the talk, it's like, well, they, they, China didn't just study the U.S. They studied places like Singapore and saw that, well, actually, they can, they can get more of what they want. So I think that's important to remember throughout this process, um, or today even, where, where, we can make a mis where we can make a mistake uh, in judging them. Um, I will say that the China that I dealt with a lot in the first decade of this, this century uh, is in many ways a different China. The government then had... Uh, a lot of the people much, much more educated now, much more aware. They had often, um, you know, interned maybe at Goldman Sachs or worked for different foreign governments and positions. So they were much more open to bringing in ideas. Um, they they had a very realistic way. If you think about how they executed uh, up until I'm going to say before, let's say 2015. They really executed pretty well in terms of making sure they were paying attention to all their constituents. Uh, oftentimes, talking to a, a Chinese regulator, they were more open. Uh, I'll, I'll give you an example where uh, they actually, uh, in, in one JV, uh, gave us the, the sole authority to operate that company, even though we only own 40% of it. But obviously, they had a titular local person that was the head of the firm 
uh, but they didn't necessarily, the government actually didn't trust its own people. <laughs> and so therefore, they actually made that group sign a letter that they would not interfere in the business of running the country. Amazingly wise decisions. Uh, and, it's, and it's resulted in their success. What you do see the last five or six years, and, and I think and we all now know this, is uh, there is emerging away from the Deng Xiaoping, black cat, white cat, I don't care if Clones catches mice, to much more loyal to the party uh, and, and much more restrictive. And that, that's something that, uh, you know, we have to recognize is the reality. Um, you know, we, we see in Silicon Valley, for instance, just how often the private firms that were, were, were coming in, uh, we thought were genuine either about making investments or, 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 or um, you know, buying their products. And it turned out that they were often quite closely connected with the MSS and, 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 and engaging in stealing. So we do have to, 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 to be more on guard in that respect. I, I will add that we have to know, again, this is where history comes in, how much we stole from the English in the early part of the 19th century. So, you know, Steely went both ways. And in fact, how I began by quoting Ovid, uh, there are situations now where we can be saying to ourselves, well, you know, they, st they stole from us, you know, first gen. Uh, well, we're looking at second gen. There's no reason why we can't be learning from them and, 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 and taking back a lot of ideas. They are learning a lot and it gives us an opportunity to, uh, to learn back now for, from them. So I, hope, I don't know if that helps, but- uh, No, it does, that, that's terrific. Okay, we've got another question in here. Um, what is the most important subject to study in the university apart from language for working in Asia? Um, well, <clears throat> I remember, the best way I'd like to answer is what a professor at Harvard once said, uh, said to me, he said, whatever you're gonna go into, Take as many other courses in other subjects as you can. And, and so if you're going to be in marketing, let's say, uh, you're going to get enough of marketing exposure. You're going to take enough to get a job. <laughs> but you want to take a lot of, a lot of uh, studying and finance and in production and the like. <clears throat> and it's the same kind of thing here. If you already are in finance, you're going to be studying that subject. Make sure you get in and learn history. Uh, learn political science uh, and the like, uh, even psychology. Uh, if you notice in the presentation, you know, I was working with subjects that are very finance, uh, engineering oriented even, uh, and yet it's understanding people that mattered the most. So uh, uh, understanding what they call soft subjects is, is often very important. I thought that was great advice and I've seen it play out since, since my 20s, meaning Whatever it is in your, you're doing in school, try to learn as much about what you're not going to do as a field. <laughs> Terrific. Uh, okay, I guess we have time for one last question. Okay. Uh, and the question is, how challenging is it to communicate back to American headquarters when they're not on the ground in Asia, that the folks you're communicating with don't understand what's going on on the ground? Well, that, that, that was the side I concluded in. Uh, it's hard. Uh, it's, the good news, though, is it's much easier with, with now with Zoom uh, and the, the kinds of ease of communications that, that, uh, that you have. Um, uh, whereas <laughs> 30 years ago, it was telexes. Uh, and you can imagine what that was like. And they would only let you come home every other year. Uh, that's why I, and I'll just briefly reiterate put a little more color on what I had in managing upward, upward. That means you've got to have a lot of people in advance that you've gotten to know well. Uh, and then when you do leave overseas, you spend a lot of time continually communicating with them. Uh, that's, that's giving you uh, an update on where the headquarters is really coming from. Uh, and then likewise, you just spend a lot of time coming back to them and telling them what you're seeing. Uh, you know, you want to stop the the, the, the things I talked about where the decisions are made in, in New York or, or Washington, and they just are totally irrelevant there. So it's just hyper, hyper communication. Uh, you know, you want to be listening to them as well, because when you come, when you do say back to them, okay, it's different here, and this is why it won't work. You want to incorporate what they've said, which is very important. Um, 
and you want to find other people, even in your own country, that can help you in that communication. Uh, but uh, in effect, you, you, you know, you say to yourself, well, at headquarters, I spend X amount of time uh, communicating with superiors and peers and the like. Uh, you'd say, when I go overseas, I won't be able to do it as much. Ironically enough, you still do, <laughs> even maybe more so. so. Terrific. All right. Well, um, thank you all very much for attending. Tim, thank you so much for, for taking some time out of your day today to spend it with us and to pass along your thoughts and your wisdom. Um, and we look forward to seeing all of you at a, another event uh, in the near future. Thank you all. Great. Thank you.